Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled 1894, the American midterm election that changed everything. The date, October 2022, and my name is Bell Avis. As Forrest Gump might say, hyperbole and politics go together like peas and carrots. In marketing, we call this the FUD factor. What does FUD stand for? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I marketed this way on occasion during my business career. For example, I would assemble studies to prove that my products could prevent the misidentification of medicines being administered to a patient with the implication of said misidentification lurking in the decision maker's mind. But really this technique, at least as I marketed it, was akin to pointing out a fire and noting my solution could douse the flames. In politics, not only does the candidate cast themselves in the role of a firefighter, but they claim the other guy actually was the arsonist. In business, I seldom marketed that way. For one, it took the decision maker away from the problem. And second, it provided the decision maker with a comparison to my competitor when my claim was is that only my product could solve the problem. Why would I give my competitors such legitimacy by contrasting their products with mine? For its vaunted history, the Pepsi challenge was also a commercial for Coca-Cola. This ignoring of a competitor works well in business, but the they are the arsonist or simply that guy sucks way worse than I do school must work in politics because at least here in our American Republic, it goes back to the bitter election of Jefferson versus Adams and others in 1796. But casting aspersions upon your opponent is not the only way to try to win an election. Another tactic is to elevate the import of any election into an existential decision in which a poor choice, well, will cause rivers to drain, mountains to crumble, and Netflix to put ads into their TV programs. The horror! Therefore, in this ethos, every election is the, quote, most important of our lifetime, unquote. Now, this tactic is not necessarily a new one. There is evidence of uh, of an election in 1805 in which a candidate in a county election called it the most important of our lifetime. But the constant repetition of this, and one in which every election is seen in this way, seems to be a relatively recent occurrence. Progressives seem to always miss that the more politics is introduced into more aspects of our lives, the more contentious it all becomes. I was old enough to vote in 1988, a GOP win, and 1996, a GOP loss. But I do not remember those elections being portrayed as existential to the survival of democracy and our republic. This type of rhetoric really began to gain momentum in 2000 with the contentious election of George W. Bush versus Al Gore. Not only did the Electoral College count come down to a few hundred votes in a few Florida counties, but Bush was the first president, not the last as we know, to lose the popular vote and eventually win the presidency since Benjamin Harrison in 1888. Since that 2000 presidential election, every presidential election has been 
the most important in our lifetime. The latest wrinkle beginning in 2010 is that midterms have taken on that hyperbolic moniker and in the pursuit of clicks, likes, views, subscribers, anything really in place of, you know, real news, real reporting, real journalism. Here's an example. We have MSNBC saying this year that the 2022 midterms may actually be the most important elections of our lifetime. The November elections could well determine whether we have free and fair elections ever again. The stakes are no less than that. Eugene Robinson, longtime liberal columnist for the Washington Post, avers the 2022 midterms are the most important in my lifetime. The Daily Kos states, the next two national elections will probably decide the fate of the American Republic, and that means specifically whether our country continues to operate as a democracy dedicated to the preservation and expansion of human rights, or whether it descends into a quasi-fascist autocracy. I always love this fear-mongering coming from liberals in 2022, conveniently forgetting that Joe Biden will still be president come December, and I am somewhat doubtful that whether November proves a red trickle, a wave, or a tsunami, that the GOP will somehow find their way to 67 Senate seats necessary to overturn Biden's veto. Without that, uh, well, we'll just say interesting occurrence, Joe Biden can veto whatever the legislator decides to do. He just can't move his own legislation through. And alas, it is not just on the left. This from Sean Hannity. I just want to take a step back and lay out exactly what is at stake. As I've been trying to say, this may be the most important and consequential midterm election of our lifetime. I like that liberal slate right had writer Dan Pfeiffer in 2020 stating the most important political platitude of our lifetime in doing yeoman historical work such as this nugget. During the 1996 Clinton Dole campaign, Bernie Sanders declared it the most important election in our lifetimes and an election in which the choices have never been clearer. Really? Clinton Dole? It's hard to look back at a Dole administration and think it would have ruined the American experiment. Pfeiffer adds, in other words, politicians need to make today's election about tomorrow, which means they need voters to believe that the future literally depends on their vote. Some politicians have short-circuited that by saying it's the most important election of our lifetime. The problem is, when they do it again and again and again, well, if everything is important, well, you can figure it out from there. And with such hyperbole, it may be difficult to go all Nostradamus to know what will be the most important midterm election of our lifetime. But, dear listener, your intrepid conservative historian will attempt to provide you the most important midterm election from the past. I would argue that the midterm election of 1894 was the real thing. It was far more critical than a host of presidential elections at the time. And for the Americans of the late 19th century... I would argue it is the most important, at least, of their lifetimes. For most progressive historians, and since so many historians are and have been progressive, the history itself of America really began in the early 20th century with the advent of the progressive era. 
And for them, there was this sort of fallow period between the Civil War and the Progressive Era consisting of unscrupulous business interests running roughshod over the nation. And of course, we would add to that the Jim Crow era. Think of the two terms most associated with this period, especially when we're talking about the North. There is the Gilded Age and the Robber Baron Era. Gilded is defined as covered thinly with gold leaf or gold paint. The meaning is not subtle. Though the country became incredibly wealthy, it was all gilding, a facade of misery and decadence that could only be saved by the noble progressives of Roosevelt, Taft, and most of all, Woodrow Wilson. The term Gilded Age is actually the most approving term. Robber barons, coined in the 1930s at the height of the Depression, implies a period of rapacious capitalists stealing from the workers and lining their own pockets at the expense of all Americans. The reality of the late 19th century America is a little different. This was the era when the United States grew to be the largest economy in the world. It was the time when the economic and industrial foundation was laid out in all the new industries emerging in the modern era, from oil to steel to electricity and railroads, the United States became the global leader. All of the successes of the 20th century, from equipping and shipping a million-man army in World War I to winning World War II on multiple fronts, to emerging as the victor in the Cold War, to a level of prosperity never seen before in the history of of humanity, all of these successes was laid down in the late 19th century. The legacy bequeathed by the people of that time includes such things as 42% of our population today is overweight or obese because we have so much food. We employ millions in this nation who carry the term activist, which means they produce nothing but acrimony. We spend $75 billion, $75 billion on sports entertainment and $64 billion on pet care. The basis for this wealth began with the exploits of Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Carnegie, Frick, and later Ford, Kaiser, Firestone, and Sloan. It was amidst the emergence of the United States as the preeminent economic powerhouse, a title we still hold, that occurred before and after the midterm election of 1894. Now, the so-called Gilded Age created John Steele Gordon's empire of wealth, but it also sowed the seeds of a progressive era and a progressive mindset that first came to the fore in the election of 1894, in the wake of the panic of 1893. In 2022, our House of Representatives contains 435 total seats or representatives. That year, in 1894, the House contained 356 total representatives and was roughly divided this way prior to the election. There were 198 seats owned by the Democrats, 143 seats controlled by the Republicans, 13 seats held by the Populist Party, and two additional seats held by independents. In the 1894 midterms, the Democrats lost an astounding number of seats. In total numbers or a percentage of total delegates, 
This represented the largest change in house seats in American history. In W. Hal Williams' Realigning America, McKinley, Bryan, in the remarkable election of 1896, the author states, in the largest transfer of congressional strength in American history, the Democrats lost 113 House seats, or 57% of their total. And the Republicans, well, logically, gained 117. So think about that. Democrats begin the year of 1894 with 198 seats and lose 113 of them, 57% of the total. For comparison, in the 2010 red wave election, the shellacking, as Barack Obama described the experience, was a gain of Republicans of 24%. Compare that to 57% loss by the Democrats in 1894. But it was not just the massive number of seats, but the ideological change that was evoked. The Republicans lost a prodigious number of seats in 1874 and again in 1922, but it did not alter their political views. Those were two wave elections, but again, it did not alter their political views. And again, let's think about 2010. Even though the Tea Party a big driver in 2010, gained a number of seats for the GOP. The Democrats didn't fundamentally change at that point. The Democrats in 2010, or this version 12 years later, are very similar in their ideological or political views. However, the Democratic Party before 1894 represented two key positions. The first was an aversion to interventionist large government, and the second was a pro-business platform. This party was ruled by what were called Bourbon Democrats, many from the South. The party issued several aspects of populism. This was very much a pro-business, pro-states' rights, anti-big government party. That was the Democratic Party going into the election of 1894. For example, it was Grover Cleveland, the leader of the party and the president at the time, who, in vetoing a bill in 1887 that would have appropriated $10,000 in aid for Texas farmers, who at that point were struggling through a drought, wrote this, I can find no warrant for such an appropriation in the Constitution. And I do not believe that the power and duty of the general government ought to be extended to the relief of individual suffering, which is in no manner properly related to public service or benefit. A prevalent tendency to disregard the limited, limited mission of this power and duty should, I think, be steadfastly resisted to the end that the lesson should be constantly enforced that, and here comes the big line, though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. I'm going to repeat that line because it's so bizarro today in 2022. Going into the election of 1894, Grover Cleveland believed, though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Obviously, there was, there was opposition to this type of thinking, but there was still a robust and prevailing support for it as well. No one, not a soul on the left, believes this today. 
But can one imagine from the most firebrand on the right uttering those words? Try to imagine anyone from Josh Hawley to Mike Lee to Ted Cruz conceiving of saying such a thing, much less talk about this kind of thing in terms of Social Security, Medicare, or even ethanol subsidies, uh, a GOP plank. Though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Not even Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, or the most conservative firebrand today would ever say such a thing. After 1894, with the near elimination of the Bourbons, the Democratic Party would emerge as the party of something they were not before, the little guy, the oppressed, and the forgotten. The Republicans, the party that freed the slaves, never fully recovered their perception and association with the poor that they had had hitherto the election of 1894. Now, it would be 18 years from the election of 1894 and a Democrat in the White House. 18 years from that point until 1912 when Woodrow Wilson uh, became the first Democratic president since Grover Cleveland. When that person arrived, though, it was not the austere, small government advocate Grover Cleveland, but Woodrow Wilson and his new freedom platform that represented the first full wave of progressivism and it was in Woodrow Wilson who actually wished to abrogate, wished to gut, wished to change the concept of constitutional government. A Democrat living in 2022 would not recognize his party in 1892 or 1894. Consider the platform of the Democratic Party at that time. In national convention assembled, we do reaffirm their allegiance to the principles of this party as formulated by Jefferson and as exemplified by the long and illustrious line of his successors in Democratic leadership from Madison to Cleveland. One of the favored positions of Jefferson, so, so lovingly cited by the Democrats, was this. When all government, in little as in great things, shall be drawn to Washington as the center of all power, it will render powerless the checks provided of one government on another and will become as venal and as oppressive as the government from which we separate it. Again, think of a Democrat saying something like that today. In commenting on the spending of the Harris administration, then in power, the 1892 platform goes on to state, but also to relentless opposition to the Republican policy of profligate expenditure, which in the short space of two years has squandered an enormous surplus and emptied an overflowing treasury after piling new burdens of taxation upon the already overtaxed labor of the country. You could almost take that spacing word for word and put it to today's modern day GOP talking about today's modern Democrats. But in fact, Prior to the election of 1894, it was exactly the opposite. Also, regarding taxation, they stated that they wanted a prohibitory 10% tax on state bank issues to be repealed. These Democrats were tax cutters. And on the subject of immigration, the Cleveland-led Democrats sound more akin to modern-day Trumpists. We heartily approve all legitimate efforts to prevent the United States from being used as the dumping ground for the known criminals and professional paupers of Europe, and we demand the rigid enforcement of the laws against 
Chinese immigration and the importation of foreign workmen under contract to degrade American labor and lessen its wages. But we condemn and denounce any attempts to restrict the immigration of the industrious and worthy of foreign lands. Let's be clear. No GOP member of 2022 actually talks like this, especially like exclusion against Chinese immigration. They're not quite as as racist today, but one thing is for certain. No Democrat of 2022 would have approved that particular message. Only in two areas, resisting high tariffs and cheap money, would a 2022 Democratic find ease within the 1892 version. But consider the change in the 1896 platform taking place just two years after the election of 1894. On immigration, we hold that the most efficient way of protecting American labor is to prevent the importation of foreign pauper labor to compete with it in the home market. No more talk about criminality and no call out against any specific group such as the Chinese. No, this Democratic Party is still not really pro-immigration. But boy, have they toned down the rhetoric. Have they started to come to appreciate the power of immigration just a little bit more. And nowhere is this the stark change seen in the Democratic Party in just a few short years after the election of 1894 in which they then began to talk about business. And keep in mind, that changed. We demand the enlargement of the powers of the Interstate Commerce Commission and such restriction and guarantees in the control of railroads as will protect the people from robbery and oppression. The party of business now becomes the party of little guy. It has morphed in a couple of years after the election of 1894 into the Democratic Party that we would probably recognize today. During the period between the Civil War and the election of 1894, the type of people who the Democrats tended to run for election were what would basically be called kind of steady eddy types. We're talking about people like Samuel Tilden, General Winfield Scott Hancock, and of course, nobody more solid than the near 300-pounder Grover Cleveland himself. This was the type of people who the Democratic Party tended to lean to in post-Civil War pre-1894 times, but that ended with that election. The destruction of the Bourbons meant the rise of William Jennings Bryan. Though remembered for his cross of gold speech, Bryan is also historically significant for being nominated not once but three times for his party and losing every single time. But if ever there was a a good application of the term populist, that was Brian, a clear differentiation from what had become. Here is an example of some of his uh, speechifying. We say to you that you have made the definition of a businessman too limited in its application. The man who is employed for wages is as much a businessman as his employer. The attorney in a country town is as much a businessman as the corporation council in a great metropolis. The merchant at the crossroads store is as much a businessman as the merchant of New York. The farmer who goes forth in the morning and toils all day, who begins in spring and toils all summer, and who, by the application of brain and muscle to the natural resources of the country creates wealth, is as much a businessman as the man who goes upon the board of trade and bets upon the price of grain. 
The accommodations that were made in the post-bellum party, especially under Cleveland and the Bourbons with the business side, is gone. With the populist Brian given his opening by 1894, the Democratic Party had begun its transition. Historians consistently note that between 1896 and 1932, the Republicans won every presidential contest save the split vote of 1912 and Wilson's re-election. But the structure of the Democrats, now focused on the likes of Bryan, was sown by the destruction wrought in 1894. Now, 1894 obviously didn't happen in a vacuum. You're not going to lose 113 of 198 seats just because all of a sudden people woke up one day and decided they didn't like the Bourbon Democrats. No, the overriding cause was the panic of 1893. This was inextricably connected with the election of 1894, which is true and oft noted by historians. The key historical effect, though, is, is that the presidential election of 1896 then, therefore, is inextricably linked with that of 1894. By 1896, the panic was beginning to ebb, but the disastrous results of 1894 had so wounded prominent Democrats that a way was open to Bryan. Even Cleveland, the winner of three, count them, three popular vote contests for president, was fishing at the time of the 1896 presidential convention, Political scientist Richard Bensell attributes Cleveland's political inaction to the president's loss of influence in his own party. Before the Panic of 1893, the country had experienced previous downturns in 1819, 1837, and 1873, but they had always recovered in less than half a decade and the nation had always emerged from these panics stronger than ever before. But by the election of 1896, after that colossal year of 1894, this concept of non-intervention by the government after panics was gone. Of course, there were some governmental interventions. After the Panic of 1837, Martin Van Buren attempted to create something called the Independent Treasury to meet that. But it was a very small effect, not a massive movement of government, but a different way of looking at the monetary situation. But as I noted, after the Panic of 1893 and the destruction of the Bourbon Democrats, this concept of non-interventionism was gone. And by the time of the Panic of 1929, now of course they're called crashes due to the intervention of the progressive historians, government intervention was the answer even though the history of the New Deal and the presence of the Fed proved useless in solving the crisis. In fact, a good argument could be made that the, a lot of these interventions perpetuated the so-called Great Depression. It was World War II that ended the Depression of the 1930s, whose greatness, I believe, was caused, not solved, by FDR and the New Deal. By 1912, with Wilson's new freedom, the transformation from small government, the Jeffersonian ideal was gone and had been transformed to big government. Wilsonian extravagance was complete. Looking back from 2022, the Republicans of the 1890s seem like today's progressives. The Benjamin Harrison administration was a study of governmental intervention. 
The Bourbon Democrats under Cleveland seem more like today's Republicans. This would be a misnomer. Not since the 1920s has any major United States political party remotely resembled the Bourbon Democrats. Certainly not the interventionist Hoover. Certainly not Eisenhower with his interstate highways, who was not even necessarily a Republican four or five years before he actually ran for office. Certainly not Nixon, who built out the EPA and took the nation off the gold standard. Certainly not George H.W. Bush, who raised taxes. And the aforementioned George W. Bush saw government intervention as the best course to manage the economic meltdown of 2008. On the other hand, Ronald Reagan, the consummate, less government champion, did not dare touch entitlements such as Social Security, Medicare, or Medicaid. And governmental outlays, chiefly in the form of defense spending, increased under Reagan's watch. All of this can be traced back to 1894. Some might conjecture that it should actually be 1893, the year of the panic, in which this fundamental perception of the role of national government from distant arbiter to fundamental intervener changed. Yet, it was in 1894 that the midterm election categorically transformed the role and the focus of the Democratic Party without fully excising the interventionist impulse of the Republicans. That had begun as far back as Lincoln. It was in 1894 that Grover Cleveland, the champion of a non-interventionist government, was politically neutered. One might say that this transformation might have begun in 1896 or even in 1901, which upon the assassination of McKinley, the progressive Theodore Roosevelt became president. But let's be clear, by that point, the attitude of the people towards their government and the government towards the people had already been changed and the perception irrevocably altered. And that is why I say with a high level of confidence that the election of 1894 was the election that changed everything. Thank you for listening to this latest podcast from the conservative historian. Please check out all of our podcasts. This is Bell Avis.